Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the extra show for episode 49, where we discussed the potential for an economic paradigm shift with the chief economist of the IPPR, Catherine Colebrook. I'm Progress Deputy Editor, Connor Pope, and I'm joined today by Progress Director, Richard Angel. This week, we put to bed the next issue of Progress Magazine, um, a bumper Labour conference special issue with a big focus on the IPPR report, Prosperity and Justice, that we discussed on this week's podcast. We've literally put blood, sweat and tears into this one, it feels like. <laughs> so, on, on the magazine, I'm the deputy editor. Richard, you are the editor. For people who aren't really involved in you know, publications and stuff like that, basically the deputy editor is someone who does all of the work and the editor is someone who takes all of the credit. It's, it's roughly the... <laughs> The delineation of... <laughs> that seems very fair. That seems very yeah, fair. Of course not. Um, but yeah, we, we had a big focus on this new uh, report, including a 3,000-word exclusive essay from the IPPR about it in the magazine, which will be landing with members and subscribers on Wednesday or Thursday of next week, I think. So yeah, what, what did you make of Prosperity and Justice and, and our chat with Catherine? Firstly, I thought they've done a remarkable job to pull together... Lots of things the left has been thinking about what would make for a fairer society. Secondly, I thought they communicated that in a very accessible way. It's a real mm. easy read. And when you pick up the book, it's about 300 pages, but thankfully about 80 of them are notes at the end. So <laughs> it's not quite as big as it looks from the outset. Thirdly, what an amazing array of people they had behind the report. Obviously having Justin Welby out there making the, his speech at the TUC this week uh, to reinforce that message that those who believe in a fairer society, aren't just socialists and aren't just Christians, that we can mm. work together as people who, from faith communities and political parties, to try and bring about that change, I think is really crucial. Having the general sector of the TUC on it through to venture capitalists is a great coalition for change. And we had an event this week with Will Hutton and Andrew Donis, who have got a similar set of proposals. And Will Hutton said he reckons 30% of board members in FTSE 100 companies would sign up to an IPPR mm. style agenda for a change of economy. Now, that is a pretty phenomenal thing. And that is, a, that is a coalition of support that we should be able to take forward. And I think they did a great thing. And it was such a pleasure to have Catherine on the podcast because her clear articulation of that agenda was 
exactly what we need to hear. She isn't from central casting of what you expect of an economist. Mm -hmm. It wasn't dull or about charts and theories. It was, this is how we can help real people in their lives. I think what was really interesting on the back of um, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury's speech to the TUC this week actually was the... um, big Tory reaction against it. So obviously the, the Church of England has long been described as uh, the Tory party at prayer because of this kind of view of it as, um, as being an essentially very conservative and, and English institution. But there, there was a big blowback from Tory MPs who accused Welby of parroting Labour's policies and, and things like that. There didn't seem to be much self-reflection there. They did similar attacks on the IPPR when the report came out last week uh, about it being a left-wing think tank and, you know, the idea that it's independent is is not true or whatever. But they don't really look at the the commissioners who, who were on the board of this report, who were, as you say, really broad. And, and a lot of Tories don't really seem to grasp how far away, I think, the public has moved on a lot of these issues. I think that what was so amazing, oh, I think you're right. And I think what was so amazing about that is that maybe the reason by why, why Justin Welby was part of the report and endorsing it was because of that sometimes, you know, innately conservative English way of doing things in that what we are seeing is a turbo capitalism that is crass about place, about people, about consequences, about who gets rich and who doesn't get a chance that, you know, companies that do gender pay audits and exclude all their cleaners because they've contracted that out to you know, that are kind of orchestrating an an unfair economy. And that the idea that people who follow, I mean, I, I'm not a person of faith myself, but you know, follow somebody and, and a doctrine of faith that says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a, a rich man to. That doesn't seem an anathema to, to the me. kingdom of heaven, not to, to, not to also get through the needle. Yeah, Fair literally. enough. Good point. <laughs> and um, I think you're more adept at these things uh, <laughs> than I am. But, you know, that maybe the anathema is the Conservative Party mm. to the kind of fairness that isn't mainstream to British socialism of out and out equality uh, for everyone, although obviously what I believe in, but it's just a a sense that there are people out there that do a solid day's work. And the best example of this is is in the IPPR, how we tax work and how we tax wealth. So if you go and do, I'd I'd love to do an eight hour day this week. (laughs) If you do eight, 10, 12 hour day this week, you get your pay packet back and you get your 20%, 40% or 45% tax rate. If you have given some money to a stock exchange at some point, bought some shares, own a property, and done nothing for a while, you can have massive dividends and they get taxed at either corporation tax levels or 20%. Why is that? You did no work for that. Why why does our economy reward the people who don't do work but accumulate wealth than those who go out to work to get wealth? And that was I think that was a perfect example of both the values of a very innate sense of of English fairness or British fairness or European fairness, I don't care what level of fairness it is at, with what makes for a just economy. There's there's an old kind of um, adage, isn't there, among business people that um, the hardest million pounds to make is the first. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, once you've got a million pounds, it's kind of easy to then be, uh, you know, a multimillionaire, but uh, actually getting from, you know, 
20 grand a year to having a million pounds in the bank. And one of the things that Ed Miliband said, we've interviewed him for the edition, and it was really fascinating talking to him. He was self-reflected about his time as leader, about how he pioneered much of this argument. But, you know, he was saying we focus so much on the inequality in earnings, and understandably so, but we've rarely focused on the inequalities in wealth that exist. And I think this is one of the ways that the last Labour government was slightly unfairly critiqued, is that until the crash, it, it did a really sterling job of trying to stop the gap between rich and poor in earnings mm. getting um, exaggerated. But what it was unable to do was stop the, the gap between rich and poor with wealth. Because if you started that Labour government with no wealth, you probably ended that Labour government with no wealth. If you had wealth at the beginning, because we had 10 years of growth, and even though we had the most terrible crash, it seemed to work for the people who had wealth in the system, if they came out of it still with wealth and increased wealth at the end... And the very measures that Labour put in to deal with that, the savings gateway, which the Tories abolished, and I, this week they have re-established a kind of poor man's version of it, and the child trust fund, which the, will start to mature in the next two years, the first uh, tranche of those, they were real efforts to try and make sure people had a stake in that asset society. And the Tories have, have seen them away. And those kind of changes are only going to be generational if brought in by a Labour government and ones that the Tories have basically got to either leave alone or not abolish if they get in. It's tough. You know, interviewing Ed Miliband for the magazine was was really interesting, um, you know, especially his uh, quoting of Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci within a minute of his... seconds. <laughs> within a minute of his entering the room. And it was really great to get uh, some of his um, thoughts about the report, which um, he seemingly devoured as soon as um, arrived in his office. And I believe he has been following it throughout. I think yeah, yeah. Um, he, he wasn't prepared to say it. I thought he would have done in the sense that he clearly should have commissioned this when he was a leader. I think this was this was a missing part of his project. You know, I'm not in the generally looking back business, but I think to be self-critical, I think I was stronger on the analysis. I think the scale of my analysis was big. Uh, I thought this a bit at the time, uh, but I think it's more true reflection. Um, the scale of the prescriptions weren't big enough. Well, that's where I think the difficulty is when we talk about how broad the commission was. He couldn't have commissioned something like this because actually I think part of the reason the way the IPPR have done it is to show that it is about a new consensus in, in what feels like a very divided time. And actually, obviously, if he'd commissioned it, it would have been a, you know, a very Labour-focused report that didn't really, I think... Um, point to the level of consensus in society about a lot of these ideas. And, and that's where the kind of difference is and, and how he was... I think a lot of his analysis was this is the way that society is going. But uh, during the time that he was leader, frankly, there was no electoral evidence for that. And since he's stopped being leader, I think there have been several points where we can have a look and see that there is evidence of, of this changing society. And he has a point of self-reflection and I think maybe more work could have been done early because what is interesting about the IPPR's report is that it's not that they are the first to come up with some of these proposals. They're the first to put them together coherently and show how they would add up to a paradigm shift that we desperately mm. need. So some of the preparatory work could have been done earlier, I think, is that, uh, you know, trying to be fair. But anyway, as, as we said, the magazine will arrive with... Progress members and subscribers uh, in the middle of next week. 
ahead of Labour Party conference, of course, at the weekend. And we uh, should do a shout out for Rachel Reeves, who's got a really brilliant piece that backs up mm. the Foundational Economy book that she's recently uh, brought up and how that segues nicely with what the IPPR have done. But we also hear from some of the commissioners of the report and look at it very much not through a London angle, uh, d- the power of devolution to change this and why the growth that Britain needs isn't just in and around London. The focus on devolution in the report actually is really interesting in a way that it isn't just about um, political devolution, but economic devolution, which feels that has been something that is slightly lagging over the past kind of 20 years uh, of of devolution in the country, Mm. Um, because it has been a big part of the political agenda since... New Labour got in in 1997. Well, the odd thing was, is because political devolution was rejected so early in the Labour government, we did regional development agencies, which was the economic, but because they had no political accountability Mm. or route into their community, they were able to be undone. And what then has been replaced it is the devolution of the politics without the economic powers to go with it. And what you've seen in Scotland, and one of the things that's punished the North East, is that because they have both the political and economic devolution, they have done disproportionately successful because of that. Mm. And that seems to have harmed just over the border in England because there was such a clear pull and focus on both those things north of the border. And that's clearly what... Andy now needs in Manchester, Steve needs in... Because we can see with things like the Northern Powerhouse, how uh, suddenly it falls by the wayside as soon as uh, an agenda in Westminster changes, and that that doesn't really work. But anyway, if if you do want to receive uh, a copy of Progress Magazine, we do about nine a year, and you can join at prog.rs forward slash join. You've got loads of other benefits as well <laughs> and uh, helps the people who bring you this podcast, events around the country, training and support for people who want to help renew the ideas of the centre-left. So come and be part of it. prog.rs forward slash join. Anyway, quickly before we wrap up, the question I asked this week was uh, about Mary Wilson, the wife of Harold Wilson, uh, who was also a celebrated poet in 1976. She was one of the judges on the Man Booker Literary Prize However, she largely recused herself from doing any judging, uh, bored by the amount of sex in the novels. And this led to a stalemate between the other two judges over which book should be the winner. Uh, how did they settle it? And the answer by, is... Even by my standards, this was remarkably niche. This, 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 was, <laughs> this was niche, and the answer is... They flipped a coin to wow. decide the, the Man Booker Prize that year. We will be back on Tuesday uh, discussing new polling on how Labour can take the next step and get a decent lead over the Tories with Britain Thinks Deborah Mattinson. Do remember to send in any comments and questions you have. Leave a review, rate and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with Connor Pope and Richard Angel. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton.